Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, and welcome to episode six of Leadership in Extraordinary Times. I'm Peter Tufano, the Dean of University of Oxford Said Business School. These are indeed extraordinary times. And in this series, we're bringing together our world-leading academics and leaders from the front to help us understand the new reality in which we live. In this episode, we'll hear from one of the world's foremost leaders in asset management. Joining us from Tokyo, Hiro Mizuno. Until recently, Hiro was the Chief Investment Officer of Japan's Government Pension Investment Fund, or GPIF. For those of you who don't know GPIF, it's the largest asset owner in the world. It's currently valued at about $1.6 trillion. I wanted to talk to Hiro not just because he's an amazing investment manager, but also because he's a true leader, incorporating environmental, social, and governance issues, ESG considerations, into the management of his portfolio. ESG covers things like cutting emissions and securing equal pay for workers. Incorporating these elements into investment management seems like a natural thing to do, right? But it's not. And Hiro Mizuno has been at the vanguard of making sure investors think holistically about all of these issues. Hiro is a systems leader. A systems leader is someone who not only looks after their organization and leads it well, but uses their influence to encourage others to behave in responsible ways. Hiro has tirelessly urged his fellow asset owners and managers who work for them to go beyond simple short-term profit maximization and to consider issues that affect people and planet and to make sure that these trillions of dollars are put to better use. We discuss long-term thinking, sustainability and social factors and investment decisions, and many other things. But first, Hiro explains exactly what Japan's Government Pension Investment Fund is. The name is misleading because the, it sounds like we are managing the uh, pension reserve of the, uh, the public sector employees, but in reality, we are like uh, the US or UK, the social security system. And the difference is uh, Japanese system seems to have the, uh, the saving from the uh, previous contribution, and uh, which we are managing to sort of subsidize the uh, burden on the future generation as uh, Japan is going into the aging society. So the, uh, for the pay-as-you-go pension scheme to uh, to be sustainable, we need to have more younger working, you know, the uh, generations. But in reality, Japan is one of the first countries going into, you know, the more people retire than working. So the uh, the government came up with a unique uh, structure that the uh, the keep the uh, already paid in account, which is a, a money we are managing and GPF was managing, and uh, you know the uh, GPF now. Manage. I don't know now because the, uh, there's such a volatility in the capital market, but the, officially we are managing, you know, GPF is managing when I was there, uh, $1.6 trillion, and which means like uh, almost holding like a 10% of the Japanese the, uh, stock market and uh, just a shy of like a 1% of global uh, equity indices. So uh, that's uh, what the GPF is. And I was the uh, owner to be our, you know, the investment chief for that fund for almost like uh, five years. And in that role, you became the leader, not only at GPF, but in the world around environmental, social, and governance issues. 
Um, but I suspect this is not what you were taught as an MBA student at a leading U.S. university, and it's still not really central to modern portfolio theory. Mm -hmm. so what led you to take on this almost heterodox view of what an investment manager and an asset manager should do? Tell us about the journey that went from tradition to the manager that you've become. Sure. I mean, um, when I come into the GPIF, we are managing one point, at that time, $1.2 trillion of uh, globally diversified portfolio and almost everything in the public market, you know, the either public equity or public fixed income. And then, you know, I try to remember what we have, I have learned, not only at the uh, schools uh, as a part of finance course, but also what I learned through our professional career. And uh, I couldn't really come up with you know, the, all the theory, all like uh, hedging techniques and et cetera, I was taught, didn't appear to be enough to manage GPF portfolio, which is too big and too diversified and almost all in public market, mm -hmm. right? So the, uh, if you look back, which, you know, the, uh, the MBA finance faculty teach the uh, students is like a basically a modern portfolio theory and basically we learn how you know, the efficient market is, and we learn some hedging technology or to hedge the, uh, the volatility and et cetera. But, you know, the, uh, the, when I analyze the, uh, the, what really uh, accounts for the long-term performance of the uh, big asset owners, uh, like a GPI for the other public pension fund, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, I actually came to the, uh, reach the uh, conclusion that, you know, whatever they do, you know, the uh, more active or more passive, or more private, more uh, public, for a long term, you know, the general global economy accounts for almost all of their performance. Mm -hmm. So I, then I started thinking about the, uh, you know, we were told the other uh, raison d'etat or like a mandate of the asset manager or like, you know, the manager of these kind of big pension fund is to beat the market, <laughs> to be better off than the, uh, the competitor or the peer, you know, the uh, asset managers. But in reality, I mean, over the long term, which actually our mandate was to manage the money for like 20, 30 years uh, for Japanese pensioners, uh, it doesn't make any sense. You know, that we will be subject to what happens to the global capital market. And then I started thinking about, is there anything I can do not to be just a better off than the others? Instead, how to make this system more sustainable? To make our performance sustainable, so the uh, it's totally you know the uh, different approaches. Then they can you know sort of a take the other uh, market as given and uh, try to pick the better one or dump the worst one just to be better off than the others and remaining or like a you know create the portfolio which is better than the outside. Mm -hmm. I actually just came up with the approach which is we need to make the whole you know the universe better. And that's actually results in a better performance of the global portfolio. So, uh, you know, it's actually the other uh, um, products of that kind of analysis. And uh, unfortunately, there's no role model at that time. And uh, I actually really tried to go back to the finance textbook, but nothing in it uh, to tell me what to do. So uh, it's kind of like, you know, this, I, I just organically came up with that idea. Mm -hmm. So let's follow up on that. So you said, you know, rather than say, you know, get a larger slice of the pie, you want to make sure the pie is bigger, you know, which is to say yeah, the whole right. market's doing better. So what's mm -hmm. the connection between making sure that the whole market or everything is doing better and these ESG considerations? What's the link between those two? Well, 
ESG is what people used to call it, the non-financial information, non-financial factors, meaning it's not in the financial reporting. Or some people say that because they didn't believe that the ESG factors are financially relevant. So uh, that's the, where the older debate, original debate, whether the ESG should be uh, incorporated or should not be incorporated to satisfy fiduciary duty. Uh, my approach to that was, you know, the, um, when I came to the table of the dis- where people are discussing about the ESG, I found that the, uh, a lot of people are actually using a different definition of return. But the most of people use, you know, when they say the ESG is relevant to the financial return, meaning relevant to extra return, mm-hmm. not the, the market return. So in the R, you know, the, uh, the professional jargon is alpha rather than mm-hmm. a beta. Yep. Right? So uh, I just said the, uh, the gave up on that debate because, you know, the, it's a bit of a chicken and egg. At, the, at that time, just a, it's a minority of the investment professional portfolio manager who are taking those factors into account. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to prove it's already financially relevant, right? So it's, I thought it's going to be more like a forward-looking discussion, but it's very difficult to make a forward-looking discussion in this industry because people are so obsessed with the, uh, you know, statistics. Mm-hmm. So statistics are only, you know, the uh, proven's after things happen, mm-hmm. right? So the, at that time, I have to, focus on how to convey the message. We need to focus on something which is not really, uh, you know, baked in in the today's market practice. So there's basically two approach I, I could think of uh, to shift the market is one is the uh, return approach, which actually, or opportunity approach, approach, which is trying to persuade the people, this is the opportunity to make, make, make return. Mm-hmm. And the other way is, risk approach. Mm-hmm. If the, we agree these are risks, we need to take care of that, right? So uh, I found it actually much, much easier for the people to buy into the uh, risk, uh, you know, the uh, risk approach. Mm-hmm. So uh, even the people who say like a ESG is still not financially relevant, or some people even call me, I'm religious leader, saying like a ESG not financial is a religion, right? So I, but even those people, when I ask them, but do you think that these risks exist? Environmental risk, or social risk, or governance, or corporate governance risk? Everybody says, yeah, those risks exist. So the other, I thought, the other, I actually found that we can at least agree on these are risks. Mm-hmm. So if we can agree on the risk, the next step we should take as a fiduciary is how to minimize that risk, mm-hmm. right? So the, uh, I really just are trying to approach from that angle. Mm-hmm. So the, the you know, the, um, that's how actually I kind of made a consensus that the ESG is relevant. So when the people are talking about these kinds of things, the people just come to the table to discuss the issue with very, very big or sometimes totally contradicting assumption. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the people have to really analyze it. And my analysis shows like, uh, you know, that we need to focus on a risk approach. So uh, that's how it became kind of like a consensus among my team. And uh, it became more like a natural to fit into uh, GPF's investment strategy. Great. So you talked about a risk approach and then an opportunity approach. A different approach is a responsibility approach. And sometimes you use that language. So as a responsibility, you sometimes talk about the responsibility of ownership, which is a topic that resonates with us at the school. We have an entire research project 
uh, the ownership project at Oxford Said about how it is that we're thinking about ownership and good and responsible ownership. What does it mean to be an owner? You, you've also, I'm quoting for you, you said, ownership not only means certain entitlements, but certain responsibilities. So what are the responsibilities beyond risk mitigation of a responsible mm. owner? Well, I think the, uh, you know, people like a, or organization like a GPIP is usually called the asset owner. And uh, we outsource the other uh, manage, manage, uh, asset management to asset managers. Right. And uh, asset manager invest the asset owner's money into portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, in many cases, I like the when the Paul Pullman told me that the uh, you know the uh, the uh, he called his you know his role is the asset creator. So the basically the business leader creates asset which worth investing in, right? Mm -hmm. And asset manager invest the asset owner's money in it. So, but from the day one, I felt really uh, awkward to claim I'm an asset owners because I did I knew we I was you know that we are not really acting as an owner, and uh, particularly given my private equity background, and uh, I actually worked with a lot of family business in my previous career, and uh, I felt that there's a distinctive difference between what ownership means in uh, you know like a real family business. Mm -hmm and uh, even a private equity investors, mm -hmm. and then public equity investors. Mm -hmm. right? Public equity investors feels like they are actually trading papers, not the business or not the people. And uh, private equity is they are just a pure investor, but they still feel they are more attached to the other uh, businesses mm -hmm. because they own the company. Mm -hmm. And uh, family, business there's no you know no need to discuss about it right it's obvious they feel like they are owner and i felt like the difference between being an owner and being a trader is when something wrong happens to the portfolio company owner feels the pain you know traders don't feel the pain they just trade it so the uh, i really struggle to really you know the call myself asset owners because the other all we are talking about is the market need liquidity and uh you know that the we made a very controversial, took a very controversial action to stop stop lending, which we challenged the other practice for show selling. And, uh, you know, the way, even when we discussed that, everybody said, yeah, that, you know, we, the market needs liquidity. Liquidity helps. Liquidity make the market more efficient. But that means, like, uh, you know, the asset owner is actually sitting on the fence. They, like, uh, they don't feel the pain when something, you know, goes mm -hmm. wrong with the portfolio company. So that's the other, my, sort of the other starting point of the, my journey. And then I started, you know, they are thinking about how we can be an owner. And then, you know, the very natural answer came to my mind, which is ownership comes with responsibility. And, uh, you know, that if we claim we are owner, it's not only about the entitlement. You know, we have a responsibility as an owner. So the when, you know, the something happened to the, uh, you know, anything happens, uh, bad thing happens to the customer or like, you know, the uh, the even the other, you know, the kids playing in the park and something happened to that kids. You know, everybody says, who's the owner of this facility? Who's the owner of this venue, right? And the people think the owner should be responsible, but that doesn't appear to be understood that way or actually people are practicing in our industry. We all just call ourselves the as owner, but we didn't, you know, prepare to take a responsibility of ownership. So uh, that, that's how I think. And uh, once we started thinking that way, I found it much easier to actually convince my own team and my you know, own counterparty. You know, we are the owners, so we have a responsibility. 
right? We just cannot say we are owner, we are entitled to do whatever we want to do. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And uh, one of the things I just should have probably should have mentioned at the beginning is, you know, the pension fund is particularly suitable for this discussion because we are long-term investor. And, uh, you know, the sense of ownership doesn't come with the uh, mindset of like a trading, you know, the every day or so, right? So that they, to, to be an owner, to act like an owner, they have to hold the business or hold the paper long enough. So long-term ownership or long-term investment is actually the, uh, the, they come in tandem to discuss this issue. Right. So does that mean if, you know, to contrast, for example, a universal owner like you are holding basically the whole market or a, a family owner, you know, there's a certain element of lock-in there. So since you can't trade in and out of the world, you're going to have to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. So is this only relevant to investors like that or is it more broadly relevant? Mm-hmm. Well, that's very uh, the good question because the uh, universal ownership is something probably I'm proud of myself the most. Uh, you know, the, I came up with this concept the, at the beginning of my tenure, you know, to have this discussion, whether we, only, we should only care about the, uh, the inside of the portfolio we own or we should pay attention to the, uh, you know, what happens even outside of the portfolio. So which is meaning like a negative externality. And you, you know, the, your, your school studied about the environmental issue. Mm-hmm. You know, if the, uh, our portfolio turned out to be a good investment, but they are actually producing a lot of negative externality to mm-hmm. affect the outside of portfolio, as a universal owner, someday, you know, sometime we ended up the, uh, paying for that damage too, right? So that's a concept of universal ownership. And, uh, GPF is the uh, sort of textbook example given our size of a global diversified portfolio. And uh, so every time I say this, I always face the other challenges from the audience saying like, I understand you are the universal owner, Mr. Mizuno, but we only manage tiny portfolio, right? So, or I'm only manage my own wealth, so I'm not the universal owners. And my counter argument to that is, these days, if you look at the, uh, the emergence of the, uh, the increasing popularity of passive management, you know, the, uh, some retail investor for a 401k or something, they own the other, you know, passive index. Their portfolio's risk and return is, is, is as universal as GPI's portfolio is. So uh, if you are really picky, uh, you know, the active managers, that may be a little bit different. But in reality, most of the people's the, uh, the 401k or the pension management is mostly passive. So the, regardless of the size, your risk exposure is exactly the same as the, uh, the big asset owner like GPIF. So I think the universal ownership is something that people should bear in mind. And that is really a game changer because if you go to the other uh, finance textbook, everything you can learn from the investment theory or portfolio theory, the how to make what you own better, not even the better than what it, it was, better than what else. Right. So uh, universal ownership is, is really, really important concept, and I think it is a really game changer. Next, I wanted to ask Hiro Mizuno how he puts the principles of universal ownership and ESG considerations into practice. How does he incorporate these factors into his decision making? What are the levers he has to actually change things, both within his organization and outside it? When it comes to, say, making climate issues as part of your portfolio, how do you make it real? You need to actually look at the portfolio from a little bit different angles. Like uh, the first of all, you know, if you have a passive and active portfolio, active portfolio, you can give very clear mandate to active managers. Mm -hmm. You know, we want you to manage our money. 
with those, you know, the uh, the environment issue into your consideration for your decision making, portfolio management, or etc. And then for the passive management, when I was at the GPA, we are continuously shifting the uh, the index we use for the passive portfolio management from the uh, simple uh, market weight uh, index to ESG weighted index. So uh, that's the, uh, the another explicit or direct way to integrate ESG into the uh, portfolio management. And the second is, you know, the, uh, the four years ago at the, uh, the Californian conference, I made the one very maybe puzzling at the time a statement, which is for GPIF, passive manager is not going to be just managing portfolio passively, but we expect you to be active owner. Meaning like, uh, you know, the passive portfolio manager, they cannot manage a portfolio actively, but they can act as the active owner, meaning they can actively engage with a portfolio company mm-hmm. uh, to change their business strategy. So uh, for the passive, which usually, you know, the naturally owns more voting power, we ask them to engage more proactively with the portfolio company on those ESG issues. And the active managers, they use that to make their, you know, the pricing, investment analysis, and investment decision making. And then for GPIF, we are selecting our, you know, their, their job is to select the manager and, the, uh, and give the, the manager money for them to manage for, uh, for GPIF. So we took the, uh, the ESG integration as a part of a selection criteria. We made one statement very clear, which is, if there are two managers saying they can, you know, they deliver similar return uh, to GPIF with taking similar level of risk, we would pick the one who says they control the negative externality of their portfolio better than the others. So uh, there are several ways we can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that even the retail uh, investor can actually ask their, the, uh, the portfolio advisors, how do you integrate ESG into your investment analysis and in, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, proxy voting? So there's a lot of way to do it. And uh, for GPF case, given our, you know, their cloud, I mean, uh, you know, that we engage more directly with the uh, index providers because the uh, one interesting reality, which actually not many people are actually aware of, was like a passive portfolio managers, like a black of those uh, black log banger, those people, they claim, you know, they manage like a $4 trillion, but in reality, they are not making any investment decision because what we ended up holding at a customer through their passive mandate is actually dictated by the uh, index providers, mm-hmm. right? So um, people like GPI for the big asset owner, I strongly recommend them to directly and more proactively engage with the index providers, mm-hmm. which has been more neglected, but there, you know, the impact is so, so big. And actually compared to the passive manager, the impact on the portfolio performance, you know, they are there, there's no, nothing comparable. I mean, they are much more influential. So there can be no leadership without setbacks. Do you ever have a doubt that you're on the right path? Because I'm sure and then and still now there are, there are people who say that, that this is a religion. This, this is your belief. This is not what others should do. So, yeah. so can mm-hmm. you give us some, of the, uh, some idea of the things that didn't work uh, as well as you'd like, the resistance that you faced, how you overcame it? To be a leader, uh, to really change the game, sometimes you need to get the support from um, the sort of outside of your own community. Because the one thing I found it interesting was, you know, the, uh, 
when the GPF trying to increase uh, you know, their allocation to risk asset, of course, we got a pushback from the non-financial professional, right? The people just scared of they taking a risk. But the you know, GPF get the more support from the investment of financial professionals. But when it came to the ESG, the people who really resisted hardest was the, the hardcore investment professionals. And then uh, I decided to turn to the people, non, not the other uh, investment professional, but our stakeholders, our you know, constituencies. For example, our case, uh, labor union is one of the major constituency or like, you know, the stakeholder of GPIF. Mm -hmm. And uh, usually, you know, they are actually reluctant to support uh, GPF doing something new because they think the uh, GPF doing something more risky. But the other uh, ESG, I knew they will love it because the, uh, you know, that, that's a multi-stakeholder model mm -hmm. and uh, ESG takes into account of the, uh, the, you know, the how to treat the employees, like, you know, those kind of things, like a social matters. So uh, I knew that the, uh, the labor union probably would support it. And uh, which is unusual, unconventional support of like a GPF, like, you know, the other uh, investment strategy. And, uh, you know, the, when I started advocating ESG in Japan, I intentionally had the mo more exposure to uh, non-financial media because the other, you know, like in, in the UK, like a financial time in the US Wall Street Journal, we have Nikkei newspaper. That's the financial, uh, you know, the, the, the newspaper. And then usually that the, uh, the finance news, you know, the newspaper covers most about the, what we do. Uh, and uh, those non-financial newspapers are usually kind of opposition parties. But uh, I knew these kind of environmental social issues, they will like it. So the, uh, the, we increased our exposure to non-financial paper. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I think three years ago, I made it very clear to my team. And uh, my ambition is to make ESG business buzzword, not the investment jargon. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we succeeded in Japan because in Japan, everybody talks about ESG uh, from the, uh, you know, the pensioner to the uh, corporate executive. And, uh, you know, the most explicit, the difference is in the UK and in the US, ESG only appears in the financial media. But in Japan, the ESG appears on the, the every, you know, like a newspaper, <laughs> like, a, you know, the Guardian, even a tabloid. So uh, we intentionally made it a business buzzword. And after that, we get the more support from outside and a gradually investment professional, maybe reluctantly, but start, started feeling like they need to uh, react to it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they would miss the trend. So uh, one thing I, would, I could suggest to the future leader is if you really cannot push the, the core group of your usual uh, supporter, mm -hmm. you need to turn into the other stakeholders, the other group who can be your supporter so that the, you can use that thrust to just work with. And uh, in the meantime, you know, if we can change the trend, investor will follow. I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, investors basically follow the trend. So uh, I had a strong belief at the beginning, investor is a follower, whatever they say. So uh, if the trends you know, appear to be changing, they will follow to the, uh, and uh, start accelerating the, uh, the, the change in the trend. And in fact, what you've just described is systems leadership. You weren't just trying to change GPIF, you are trying to change the broader environment. And right before you left uh, GPIF, you joined with the UK's USS plan and the US investor Calsters to issue a partnership for sustainable markets. This information can be found on our website, 
you know, saying yeah. you can't focus on short-term returns, that would be catastrophic. Uh, you have to strive to be stewards of long-term capital. Um, and you're and a shot across the bow. You're not injecting politics into business or virtuous signaling, you're fulfilling your duty. So what was this all about? Why did you and Christopher Allman and Simon Pilcher, why did you sign this document? What were you trying to achieve with this statement? First of all, I mean, I'm glad to say like now more than 10 asset owner uh, signed to this statement. So uh, three of us actually issued it, but the, uh, the, we welcome the, uh, the additional signatories and uh, now more than you know, the uh, 10 asset owners signed to this statement, which is actually great. And mm -hmm. uh, because our initial ambition is trying to make it like asset owner's statement, right? So the, basically this is the ownership statement and uh, mm -hmm. there are several uh, key issues which I wanted to put it in this letter. First of all, we keep asking the corporate to do things and we keep asking the corporate to deal with the, uh, the long-term issues mm -hmm. and also like, you know, the pay attention to the social, you know, the impacts and et cetera. We are asking them a lot, but the, uh, the I never saw asset owner actually saying, we assume these responsibilities. Mm -hmm. So this letters, you know, the important gist of this letter is asset owners stepping up saying, we are owner, we are responsible and we are mutually responsible. Mm -hmm. So the, when we say, say stewardship, usually people use a stewardship meaning we are stewardship of, steward of the, our pensioners, mm -hmm. but also we are steward of the other sheeps, which is the portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. So we are saying we have to be a good steward for our pensioners, but we should be a good steward of the portfolio company we are managing, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what it, the stewardship takes. And that's the first point. And the second point is, over the last several years, uh, Larry Fink, the black log letter becomes very you know, popular. And everybody talks about the asset managers and Larry Fink talks about this and the, uh, you know, the others. But if you actually the, uh, the put the lens of like the uh, MBA course 101, we are the principal and asset manager is an agent. But agents making a lot of statements, bold statements, saying uh, we want the other portfolio company to do this, like a business with a purpose and a climate is now important. And I said, why the other principal don't say anything, right? So, uh, you know, just to be legally picky, I mean, I don't think the agent should make that kind of statement, <laughs> to be honest, because agent should be an agent of principal. But we actually let the asset manager talk for ourselves because we are not, we didn't have a guts to talk uh, or to say like this. So uh, the second part of this, the, uh, the letter is, you know, that we are principal. So the principal has to be, you know, the more vocal about what we want, right? So, uh, and then we said, we will hold the, our agent accountable for what they say, right? That's the second part. And the third part is, you know, that's a policy of long-termism. You know, the, when I came into, uh, came into the CIO's uh, the, uh, role, you know, everybody's talking about the uh, uh, drawbacks or problem of the short-termism. And, uh, you know, in the market, and now the 80% of daily trade are made by machines. So it's inevitable to have like a short-term trading, like, uh, you know, the influence. But on the other hand, you know, people are talking about, you know, saying like, we are long-term investor, we are long-term owner. But as, you know, the, as I discussed earlier, in our practice, we are not practicing that, right? We basically talk about the long-termism, but in reality, we're not practicing it. So, you know, we suspended the stock lending and uh, it is a huge debate. It's very controversial internally and externally. 
you know, the, uh, because uh, GPF gave up more than $100 million easy money uh, by suspending stock lending. But we thought, like, you know, if we are long-term investor, long-term owners, actually lending our stock while acting as an owner and making the money and that the short, you know, seller putting a, you know, very strong, like a short-term pressure on the corporate executive, are we doing the right thing? Right. So the uh, third point of this letter is we are saying we are going to walk the talk. We are going to walk the talk of the uh, long-term investment. So uh, those are three punchline of that letter. And, uh, you know, the, it was very unique because usually the asset owner doesn't seem to be that vocal. So, uh, you know, three of us agreed to put it and uh, we opened it for the other, you know, the asset owner to sign up to it. And uh, we're very glad that the, uh, the more and more people are saying like uh, they support the idea. Great. How do you think about this time where investment returns are being hammered when economies are kind of in, in the doldrums? You know, will these kind of considerations uh, prevail when people are facing dark days? I've been saying like uh, this is a kind of moment of truth for the people who are, you know, the uh, advocating long term, like, uh, you know, ESG philosophy, uh, because the, the company is actually doing a lot to prove the ESG, so like a long-term philosophy. So uh, several things. I mean, uh, we really have to survive this like a short-term, like a, you know, market volatility, or maybe we probably have a very deep bottom and uh, a lot of people lose weight, you know, the money and it's tough time. But on the other hand, you know, Milton Friedman in 1970 says, there's only one you know, social responsibility of the uh, for-profit business to make profit. Right? So the uh, the kind of like a shareholder supremacy idea has been the uh, cornerstone of, I think, the MBA education as well. But the, uh, if you look at the, uh, what's happening in the world is a lot of companies doing something which actually hit their bottom line negatively in a short term. You know, the, uh, some company like a Salesforce, I mean, they pledged, they're not going to make any layoff for the next 90 days. And the Japanese Airlines is refunding even the non-refundable tickets in this, you know, the other uh, situation. And uh, if you really think about the, uh, the, you know, the social responsibility of the companies only to maximize the profit, they probably shouldn't refund. Mm -hmm. And uh, Salesforce probably should lay off. And uh, some companies now producing like, uh, you know, the uh, surgical mask or the ventilators and uh, they are not planning to make profit. But on the other hand, you know, the other uh, Johnson & Johnson, they now announced they are gonna develop their vaccine not for profit basis, and would the shareholder agree to it if they really develop it? And uh, everybody knows they're going to make the billions of billions, right, by the, uh, the by vaccine. And uh, how should the investor react to it? How should the, uh, you know, the other uh, shareholders should react to it? So this situation really presenting the, uh, the real case study, how the people should approach, you know, the raison d'etre of business. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, you know, I always tell my friends, now I'm actually out of, outside of the asset management industry, I keep telling them like, you know, the, you have to save your wealth. But the, on the other hand, think again before you take some actions. And uh, some of the CEO I'm very close with, and uh, after he read our, you know, asset owner letter, he sent me a text saying, Hiro, I decided not to short on the airlines and the cruise companies. Because, you know, they are my peer CEO and they are struggling at that moment. And uh, I don't want to put the, uh, the additional pressure on their uh, the corporate executive. And uh, 
that's not the fiduciary investor. That's his own, you know, the, the personal money. But, you know, these kind of things we need to think about well in, uh, in this situation. And, uh, you know, the how corporate responsibility will be uh, readjusted. And uh, I really keep an eye on the uh, ESG investor, whether they will live up to their philosophy or they actually, you know, use ESG as a, just a trendy buzzword. One additional point is, particularly after this crisis, there are two possible uh, paths that the, the world can take. Because now, the, given the huge reduction in the carbon footprint of this year, meeting the Paris Agreement all of a sudden became realistic. I mean, the, uh, and people, you know, they used to think the uh, Paris Agreement is kind of not realistic, right? So they, they only like, you know, the talk, but they are not prepared to make a commitment. But now I think that given this is a huge drop, it's become more and more realistic. And then now you see the blue sky everywhere and uh, there are a lot of wild animals coming to near, near us. So uh, we now enjoying the, uh, the, you know, the environment, the health is coming back. So two passes, you know, one is we got, you know, that we take the advantage of that and that we develop the yeah, recover in a green way. Or the other process, you know, we need to recover the economy. So we don't care about those kind of things. Let's, you know, the, uh, the you know, the bond, the fossil fuel, the, the uh, you know, the, the make, let's make a lot of ways to just, uh, you know, prompt the recovery. And uh, that passes, uh, you know, creating another catastrophe in the future. So, uh, we just need to make sure that the, uh, you know, the either by making it mandatory or policy, not to just uh, we fall, fall into the uh, second pass. My sincere thanks to Hiro Mizuno. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about the Leadership in Extraordinary Times series, please visit oxfordanswers.org.